0: Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter three, Hebrews chapter three, where we're in a series on the book of Hebrews that we've entitled Stand Strong. And the reason why is because what we're reading in Hebrews, will help us to do exactly that. To stand strong in the face of opposition, maybe ridicule, persecution. To stand strong for Jesus in the midst of our relationships, both with people who know him and people who don't. To help us to stand strong in our walk with God, because as we read the book of Hebrews, it's a book about Jesus. It's a book that continually is telling us to look to him, to focus on him, to fix our eyes on him. And to the degree that you and I do that, it's the degree that we'll know his strength, that we'll know his power, but most of all, we'll know that intimacy that comes from walking close to him. My prayer is that every single one of us we get done with the book of Hebrews. We'll say, We know Jesus more, we love Him more, and our faith is stronger so He can do more through us. Amen? Amen. And today we come to one of seven warnings in the book of Hebrews. It's been very interesting. I mean, I've, I've always known there were warnings, I haven't really gone through and ever counted them and looked at them, but it's very interesting. When you look at the seven warnings in Hebrews, we saw the one in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4 on drifting. It's a warning against drifting away from Christ. Today, we have a warning against unbelief, and that it is the longest of the warnings. It goes from chapter 3 on through chapter 4. Then there's a warning against immaturity at the end of chapter five, first part of chapter 6, that, that there's something wrong with a person's Christianity if they never mature. If they're constantly an infant in their thinking, in their knowledge. God never intended that people continually be babies in Christ. It's a warning in chapter 6 against apostasy. You say, what's that? That's walking away from the faith. There is a warning against deliberate sin in Hebrews chapter 10. It's a startling warning and maybe as strong and shocking as any of the warnings. There's a warning in the middle of chapter 12 about rejecting the grace of God. And then there's a warning at the end of chapter 12 about refusing to hear the voice of God, refusing to listen, refusing to respond, refusing to do something with what you've heard. It's very appropriate that that would be the last warning because as we walk through the book of Hebrews, we're going to hear several warnings. We're going to learn a lot of things about Jesus and all of that should elicit from us a response of greater devotion To the Lord and greater love for Him. I think one of the things that becomes obvious to me when I look at this list is simply this that a casual approach to Christianity may mean the person is not a Christian at all. That if your Christianity is just an addendum to your life and not the focus of your life, something is wrong with your Christianity. And you have to ask at that point if you even are a Christian or not. And I say that simply. I'm not here to to, um, in any way destabilize Christians. I believe in the assurance of the believer. However, at the same time, there are a lot of people, and I think this is the concern of any Bible-preaching pastor is that there are people who are listening to the message who think they're a Christian and they're not. Because they have no interest in the things of God. There's no fruit born in their life. They do like hanging out at the church because, honestly, you're not going to find a better group of people than the people you're going to meet at James River. And I think that's true of a lot of churches. There are great people who follow Christ. And there might be a squirrel here and there, but God's working on them, right? (laughs) Now the key verse is Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. The issue, the warning, that we're going to look at has to do with unbelief. Here's the problem with unbelief. Unbelief is sinful and unbelief turns people away from God. As we look at Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to see five dangers of unbelief. Five dangers of unbelief. If you have the app On your phone, you can go right to that. You'll see the notes right there. Week after week, it's got the scriptures. You can add your own notes. I'm simply suggesting that as a great way to follow along in the message, to get all of the things, so you're not having to write down everything, just the things that God is speaking to you in the midst of the message, and then I would encourage you to take the message and go back over it through the week at some point so that it gets really embedded in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that it might yield fruit in your life. Danger number one, unbelief causes people to lose courage. As you come to Hebrews chapter three, the writer is pointing us to Jesus. He says this in chapter three and verse one, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. In other words, you're thinking about Jesus. Reminds me of what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds, or your thoughts, on things above, not on earthly things. The idea is for a Christian that our affections, that's our heart, and our mind, that's our thoughts, would be focused on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is going to say this over and over again, maybe the most well-known of the verses in Hebrews, I don't have it for the, for the uh, screen, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, dis- suffered the cross." despising the shame. And he was, it says, consider him so that you and I might stand firm. There's something about when you and I have our mind on Jesus, it helps us to live for Jesus as we go through life. Now, having told us to focus on Jesus, the writer is writing to Jewish people who esteem Moses. You remember that in John chapter 6, the Jewish people were challenging Jesus. As they're challenging him, they're reminding him, hey Moses gave us bread in the wilderness and Jesus said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. And so the writer is reminding us that Jesus is greater than Moses because while Moses was a servant in God's house, Jesus is the son over God's house. He's not only a son in the house, he's a son over it. And what is God's house? Look at it in verse 6. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house. We're the house of God. The house of God is not this building. You and I, when we gather together, we are not only the body of Christ, but we are the house of God, the representation of Christ on the earth. Now watch this. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The real test of faith, watch this, if we hold on to our courage, if we hold on to the hope, tells us something about faith versus unbelief, and tells us that the real test of faith is if you stay in the faith. And honestly, if a person is here today and gone tomorrow, and I'm not talking about gone because of occupational responsibilities and they are, they are stuck in a job that precludes them being a part of a gathering of believers. And that's why I'd suggest if you have to work on Sunday, get in a life group. Or come on Wednesday night, figure some time out. But we're not talking about people who have occupational realities that preclude them from being in church, nor are we talking about people who have physical disabilities or illnesses that preclude them from being in church. We're talking about people who have made optional choices that keep them from being in church. If somebody can give their heart to Christ today and then not return to the church for a year, or only return sporadically, and not care about being a part of the body of Christ, because the writer of Hebrews, again, is going to get really clear with us in chapter 10, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and especially all the more as you see the day appearing. As we get closer to the return of Christ, we ought to be in church with even more diligence, is what he's saying. But when somebody professes Christ, and that never has anything to do with his house or his body, something's wrong with their profession. I mean, I'm not suggesting that when they appeared to make a decision for Christ, that they didn't sense the presence of Christ. What I am suggesting is there are many people who have an encounter with Christ, but it is not saving. And that confuses people. They think because they felt his presence that they actually had their, they actually are saved. And the proof of salvation is not that you felt his presence, the proof of salvation is that your life is radically changed. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest, is passed away, behold, everything's new. So if you're not a new person, I'm not talking about on the first day, it might take a while before you realize it, but if after a few months you can't look at your life and see you're different, something was wrong. If after a few months there's no fruit in your life, if you don't have the fruit of salvation, it's because you don't have the root of salvation. First John chapter 2 and verse 19 says, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. How do we know that? Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they did not belong with us. So if if somebody comes forward, makes a decision, but then they vanish, and not because they're going to a different church, but because they're going to no church. What John is saying is they weren't saved in the first place. It's what Jesus is saying in the parable of the seed and and the sower, and the word falls on shallow ground, and, and it's indicative, Jesus says, of a heart that receives the word of God with joy, but in a time of testing or persecution, there's no root, so it withers. And then there's seed that falls on thorny soil. And Jesus says, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life and the worries of this life choke it out, and it doesn't produce fruit. It's a temporary convert, which is not a convert at all. Hebrews chapter 3 says, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which We boast. He's going to say the same thing in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. If your commitment to Christ is a sustained commitment, if it's a life-changing commitment, if it's a fruitful commitment, it's a real commitment. But if it isn't, then you need to do some inventory. Listen, I don't don't get any plaques. I don't get any awards for people who come forward. That's not what this is about. My concern is there are people listening right now, either online at this campus or one of the other campuses, and you have thought that you were born again, but when you hear me talk about it this way, you would have to say, I might not be. And it's good for you to consider that, that you might have a saving, transforming, life-changing encounter with Christ, because that's the only kind that will get you to heaven. And that's my concern. What would bother me, as one who will someday give account for your soul, Is that somehow I lulled you to sleep thinking you were saved? When in fact you'd never had a saving encounter with Christ. Once a person is saved, it shows. But then there's other people that what happens is at the same time as there is belief, there's unbelief. And unbelief is damnable in anybody a believer or an unbeliever. One of the tragedies is to see unbelieving believers because of the havoc it wreaks in their life, but then there are people who just simply operate in unbelief, period, and what happens is unbelief diminishes a person's courage and diminishes their confidence. Well, I don't have a lot of time, but I'm gonna, I am gonna read you this scripture because I think it is a classic account of what, of what unbelief does to people Moses takes the nation of Israel. They're going to invade the promised land. God has given it to them. He sends 12 spies into the promised land to bring back a report of the land. Here's the report they gave. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. I mean, it's so heavy. The fruit's so heavy. It takes two men to carry the fruit. The fruit's on a pool between them. But... There's always a but in unbelief. Well, you know, but. Well, you know I would, but. Well, I think that, I know they say this, but. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw, now I want you to think about this. What happens when a person is walking by faith, they're not walking by sight. But unbelief only goes by what it sees with its physical eyes. In fact, unbelief is blind spiritually, so it can't look at things through a spiritual lens. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Listen, God said, I'm sending you into a country, and the nations are there, there's seven nations greater and stronger than you, but don't worry, I got this, you will defeat them. Then Caleb, he's one of the 12, and he's a man of faith. Here's how faith talks in the midst of obstacle. Caleb, silence the people. He tells them, listen, he says, he silences them. Why? Because unbelief, if left unexpressed, dies. Some of you are your own worst enemy. You say things of doubt and unbelief so continually that you are feeding your unbelief while you're starving your faith. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't. It's the language of unbelief. I can't. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report. Listen, unbelief always wants to accumulate other unbelievers around it. So it chatters, it talks, it says crazy things, says things that are against what God is saying, so it can draw a crowd, so it can feel justified in its unbelief. Give me the next verse. We saw the Nephilim there, that's the giants, the descendants of Ananak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. You see, what happens is unbelief focuses on itself. When you focus on yourself, your problems are very big and you are very small. Faith, on the other hand, doesn't focus on the obstacle. Faith has its eyes on Jesus. Remember we talked about fixing your eyes on Jesus? What happens is when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the result is that there is great faith because the more you see of your great God, the greater your faith will be of his help to your life. So here they are, they talk themselves out of his help. Listen, unbelief causes people to lose courage. One of the things unbelief does is it exaggerates the problem. Some of you are facing a problem, and here's a way to understand whether you've got faith relative to it. Are you exaggerating it? Are you making the problem bigger than it is? And is that your calling card? Are you the kind of person that when somebody says, how are you doing, oh, it's terrible. My cat won't eat her food. And I mean, you're like, what? Cat will be all right. Count on that. Okay. If you're a cat lover, we love you. Not sure about the cat. Okay, it causes people to stop trusting God for the miracle that only he can do. It causes people to lose confidence because they're focusing on themselves instead of fixing their eyes on Jesus. And it spreads like a cancer in any group of people. This is why you have to be careful when you're in a life group. If you're a person of faith, you got to be careful. Because if unbelief starts getting vocalized, you've got you to be willing to graciously say, you know what? I believe God. You say, well, what if I make people mad? Then they really needed you to say it. (laughs) Number two, unbelief never has enough proof. Watch this. This is so interesting. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, well, how do I know that's God? You know, he says God talks to him. How 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 does he know? See, unbelief never has enough proof. Can't believe anything. Gotta have more proof. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years and saw what I did. Very, very interesting. It's a quote of Psalm 95, and and what it is, is rebellion is the word Meribah, and Testing, I think it's the word Massa. We'll have, it, we'll have it up here in a moment. Meribah and Massa. That's the way, it's a quote of Psalm 95. Puts the words actually in there. What it's talking about is right after they come out of Egypt, the nation of Israel is in a situation where they don't have any water. And they are really upset at Moses and at God. Here's the crazy thing. They've just watched God perform 10 plagues in Egypt. Stunning plagues, shocking plagues, plagues that have ruined the land of Egypt and have caused nations, will cause nations for generations to talk about what God did to Egypt. He turned the Nile River into blood and all of the fish died. He sent frogs and frogs were everywhere and then Moses says you know Pharaoh says get rid of these frogs and Moses says I'll give you I'll give you the privilege of picking the time. You know what I would have said like 5 minutes ago now. He says tomorrow. I'm like what in the world? See, unbelief is completely irrational. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He, the livestock dies, boils break out on people. They can't even, his, Pharaoh's court can't even stand there before Moses. Then he sends hail that ruins the land. And what little is left, he sends swarms of locusts that Egypt has never seen that amount since that day that destroy the land. Then he sends darkness. It's so dark you can touch it. So we don't know if it's a sandstorm or what it is. And then the firstborn is struck dead. Those are shocking, startling plagues. They had seen them all. Then, they're coming out of Egypt, and as they're coming out of Egypt, the Egyptian army's chasing them. They're trapped at the Red Sea, and they're they're all worked up, and Moses himself is worked up, and God says, listen, just stretch out that staff and command the sea to part. The sea parts, walls of water on either side, probably... A hundred feet or more high. Wide enough is the path that they cross through on dry ground. When they get through, Moses holds out his staff. The waters close over the Egyptian army who has pursued them. Now the Egyptian army is destroyed in one act. If that's not enough, now they're saying, we need food. Where are we gonna find food? There's 600,000 men besides women and children, so two million people need food. What does God do? He brings in quail, and they fly around the camp, and the people have all the quail they want. And then they're like, well, we need bread. And the next morning, there's manna, the bread of angels, and they will eat it for 40 years. So now they get to chapter 17, and you want to say, how much more proof do you need? Not only that, they have the glory of God visibly present in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So that, you say, what's the purpose of that? During the day they're in the desert, they can travel because the cloud covers them. They're in shade. At night, they can travel when it's cooler at night because they have a a torch that literally lights up everything in their path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. What more proof do they need? And yet in the midst of all of that, they are filled with unbelief. Look at it. And he called the place Massa, testing, and Meribah, rebellion because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, can you believe this? Is the Lord among us or not? Unbelief never has enough proof. Unbelief, always doubting. I wanna ask you this question. How many miracles are you gonna to have to see till you believe? How many testimonies are we gonna to have to read before you believe? How many people are going to have to watch, have their lives turned around and transformed, and we tell the testimony before you believe, there is power in the gospel, and if somebody puts their faith in Jesus, he will change your life. How many miracles do you have to see before you believe? You know, there are some of you, and you've heard miracle, over 4,000 now, you've heard miracle after miracle of healing, and you're still sitting there saying, well, you know, I just don't know. I gotta see the toes. I'm gonna tell you what, see the toes all you want, you're still not gonna believe. Because unbelief never has enough proof. No matter what God does. And here's the thing about unbelief, it replaces faith with negativity and grumbling. When somebody only has negative things to say and they're complaining all the time, it's the result, not of a rotten attitude, but of a rotten heart. It's unbelief. It's not a bad day. It's unbelief. Parents, this is a huge, huge challenge for you with your children. Your complaints, your grumbling, at the core, your unbelief, will frame your child's key thinking, and will cap or cripple their faith. you got to be careful. How much proof do you have to have to believe God? Faith looks at what God's doing and says, man, if he did all that, he did the 10 plagues, he, he parted the Red Sea, he gave us meat, he's given us the bread of angels, he's given us water from the rock. My goodness, there's nothing he can't do. I'm in, I'm on. But unbelief never has enough proof. Number three, unbelief wavers between faith and faithlessness. Now listen, I'm not saying your faith will never be challenged. But if your faith is continually wavering, it's not faith that you have or are experiencing, it's unbelief that's dominating you. James puts it this way, James chapter 1 and verse 6 In verse five, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, so the the context is trials, you're facing a challenge, you don't know what to do. James says, let me give you a promise. God is a generous, gift-giving God. It's literally in the Greek what it says. And if you ask wisdom, he will not fault you for that. He He will unload the truck of wisdom on your life. Then he says this, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. You see, it's the person who says, man, I need God to show me what to do. James says he'll give me wisdom. But what if he doesn't? Pastor preached a message on just ask and you'll receive. I'm going to do that. But what if God doesn't? I mean, he had not done anything yet. How do I know he's going to? Do you get what I'm saying? Back and forth, back and forth. Watch this. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. If you're back and forth, back and forth, it's not faith that's that's operating in your heart, it's unbelief. And unbelief puts you in a place where you can't receive anything from God. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Do you realize if you want to be stable, if you want to have courage, and you want to have confidence, you've got to operate in faith. But if you operate in unbelief, not only is there never enough proof, not only do you not have confidence, not only do you not have courage, but you're unstable in everything you do. Unbelief wavers between will he or will he not? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10 says, That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. Listen, if you're constantly, continually questioning God, it's because you don't know his ways, and you're going to have to get a hold of yourself and ask God to help you to stop questioning everything in your life. Unbelief is always veering off course. Trust God for a moment, then doubts. And part of the problem, would you notice that they don't know his ways? They, they have not known my ways. It reminds me of, of Psalm 103. I've thought a lot about this verse. I just think it's a beautiful verse. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Can I just tell you something? When all you care about is what God can do for you, and you don't care about why he does it, how he does it, or the God who does it. When all you want is the genie, who will get you your answer, but you don't care about the God of compassion and glory who gave it to you, your faith will falter. Faith is strong when it desires to know the God who does things in response to it. There's a difference between knowing what God has done and the God who is doing it. Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 11, so I declared on oath of my anger, they they shall never enter my rest. I mean, there comes a point where God says, you know what? You are so committed to unbelief. You're so committed to doubting me. You're so committed to demanding more proof. I'm not going to be able to do in your life what I wanted to do. He wanted them to enter the promised land. But even though God wanted them, and see, people make a mistake. Well, if goes, will, it'll happen. Well, not if you don't have faith, it won't. God wanted them to enter the promised land, but they refused to exercise faith. Therefore, the promised land became an impossibility, and the door was slammed shut in their face. Not because God didn't want to do it, but because they were stubborn in their unbelief. I mean, really, I I think we could could stop right here and we, I'm not going to, but we could say, how much is your doubt going to cost you? How much is your unbelief? What kind of price are you going to pay because of your unbelief? I mean, you don't believe... God's way is better, so you're sleeping with someone you're not married to, and you're forfeiting God's blessing on the most intimate of relationships. Because I'm going to tell you what, if you're sleeping together, there's the blessing of God, no matter what you tell yourself, is not on your relationship. If you think it is, you're making it up. You're living in a fairy tale land. And all you can say is, dream on Cinderella. Because it's not going to go well for you. Some of you don't believe God will multiply your finances, that he can do more with 90% in your life than you can do with 100%. So you're never gonna know the blessing of God on your finances. Some of you don't believe God's priorities need to be your priorities, so you're hit and miss in church and, and the result is your kids, they don't, they have no sense of priority relative to the church and listen, if church is important to you, to be important to them. If it's not important to you, it's not going to be important to them. Debbie and I had four of our grandkids for four days this last week, so if I look a little frazzled, you'll know why. But I was so amazed. Now, I'm a grandpa, and I get that. But I mean, those kids were amazing in their faith. They were reading their Bible. They were doing, not because I told them to, they were doing it. Grandpa, I've gotta go read my Bible right now. Grandpa, made me do this. Just the way that they did, and it's because their dad grew up in church, their mom grew up in church, and the kids are lovers of God, and lovers of his word, and That makes a massive difference as a parent. I'm just telling you, the best thing you'd ever, the best gift you'd ever give your children, and education has its place, but the best gift you'll ever give them is a faith that comes through consistently attending the church of the living God and teaching your kids to love it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. See to it. Uh, The King James says, take heed. See to it's not really strong enough. Take heed. heed. Pay attention. Wake up. Don't miss this. That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. you got to watch. you got to pay attention. Number four. Unbelief hardens the heart. Now, we've already seen this in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. I didn't say much about it because... We're coming to it right now, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, let me stop right there and say, everybody, and everybody who's going to hear the message as it goes out from beyond here, can I just tell you, you're hearing the Holy Spirit speak. You say, how, how can you say that? You think you're the Holy Spirit? No, I'm declaring the Word of God to you, and the Holy Spirit is the one who authored it. So, if you hear his voice, you have, do not harden your heart. Don't let either the enemy of your soul or your own unbelief formulate arguments as I'm even talking to try to overcome it. Well, he doesn't understand this. Well, he doesn't get that. He doesn't, he, you know, we're not all preachers, you know, and all the things people say that are ridiculous. They have nothing to do with whether we're going to believe God or not. God is calling you to a life you can't begin to imagine that knows his grace, his presence, his peace, his joy, his blessing in ways you can't begin to comprehend if you respond by faith. Watch this. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Listen, here's one of the things that that is really, really important for every single person in this in, in this church, all the campuses, to encourage people. You say, well, you know, I thought of somebody, but I wasn't sure, and, and so, listen, if you're thinking of encouraging somebody, you can know this for sure, that's not the devil talking to you. You can know that. And you frankly don't know what they're doing, and why they need it. I sent somebody a text this week. I said, man, I cannot get you off my heart. I keep thinking about you. I am praying for you. So whatever's happening, the Lord is going before you. This person says, I just got your text. I got off the plane. I'm crying because I've been battling the powers of darkness in Brazil, and God was moving in power. Thank you for praying. I mean, it just encourages people. I mean, and you never know. I mean, we all benefit from encouragement. Let me give you some ways that, that sin hardens a person's heart. I'm going to move quickly here. Number one, if you allow unbelievers to influence your life, then their unbelief will harden your heart. Or if you hang out with unbelieving believers, their unbelief will harden your heart even more quickly. Here's the bottom line. You become like the people you hang out with. So what you gotta ask yourself is, would I like my life to look like theirs? And let's take it out of the material realm and just say, would, would you like their marriage? Would you like their relationships? Would you like, would you like their at- attitude? Would you like all of that? And if you hang out with people who are operating in unbelief, you will operate in unbelief. And I think it's especially dangerous if they're charismatic or they're uh, witty or they're uh, delightfully sarcastic, you know what I mean? Which I don't think is a gift. (laughs) I think it's a real burden for people who who operate in a sarcasm that uses humor at other people's expense. And especially when it tears down people's faith. I would make this suggestion to you. You would be well served on your social media to delete, unfollow, block, or mute anyone whose posts are filled with unbelief. Now, I realize there are some of you, and here's what you're going to say, well, you know, i just like to know what's going on out there. That's suicide, Spiritually. Charles Spurgeon said this, this is a great quote. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil bears dangerous fruit. Sometimes it's better not to know. It's just better not to know. Because once you know, now you gotta deal with it. You just gotta decide would I rather have a heart on fire for God, filled with faith, believing God for big things, which He will He will honor by doing. Or would I rather have a heart that spends all of its time trying to untangle the doubts from the very clever social media post? I just think you have to think what's more pleasurable to your soul. Number two, if intimacy with God is lacking, then unbelief is present. Listen, if you're not growing closer to God and you don't feel intimate with God relationally, it's because unbelief is operative in your life. You've made choices that don't foster faith, and the only thing that that creates that is the flesh, which the flesh and unbelief go hand in hand. They go right together, and the result is a hardening of your heart. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not spending time with the Lord, then your faith isn't growing, but your unbelief is. Number three, when sin doesn't bother you, unbelief is present. I'm talking about sin in other people's lives. If that doesn't bother you, something's wrong. And your heart will become hard. And when sin doesn't bother you in someone else's life, it's only a matter of time before it doesn't bother you in your life. Number four, when you're comfortable saying no to the Holy Spirit's voice, unbelief is present and your heart will get hard. So today, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he gives a solution here. The solution is to fix your eyes on Jesus, verse one, and encourage one another. Look at this in Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. In other words, don't wait till tomorrow to send the text. Don't wait till tomorrow to pick up the phone. Don't wait till tomorrow to send the email. Don't wait till tomorrow to actually go to that person, look them in the eye, and encourage them. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't know what they need. But the Holy Spirit does. And your encouragement can make a massive difference. You say, well, they probably get a lot of it anyway. Um my response to that is it doesn't matter. Every single person needs it every single day. You do, I do. Now, I'm not showing you this to get you to send me a bunch of texts. You say, well, I would like to have your phone number. Um, That's a whole different discussion. Yesterday though, I get up in the morning, I'm getting ready to study and, you know, spend a lot of time reading, just kind of thinking about the message big week, this text pops up. In case no one told you today, you're doing amazing and I believe in you. I read it three times. It's from a friend who's hung with us for, you know what, 30 years. I was like, wow, I really appreciate that. Doesn't send it every day, doesn't have to, but it meant a lot. Number five, unbelief diminishes God's blessings. Verse 15, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This is the second time this appears In chapter three, it's going to appear again, this exact statement in chapter four. We know this, that if something is once in the Bible, if it appears once, it's important. If it appears twice, it's like, wow, flashing lights, this is very important. If it appears three times, it's like, don't ever forget this. Remember this. Don't forget this. Don't miss this. Notice it says, today, if you hear his voice. Right now, it, there's an urgency to issues of faith because what happens if you don't act on the voice of the Spirit as he's speaking to your heart, delay dissipates not only the volume of his voice, but the power that's attendant when he speaks. Because in any word of God to your heart, there is power spiritually to fulfill what that word is calling you to do. But over time, that's diminished. Let me put it this way. God tells you to go pray for somebody, stop the debate. It's not the devil telling you to do it. Go do it and believe God, in telling you to go pray, is going to do something powerful. Because the longer you wait, the power is dissipated. So you want to respond, as quickly as you can. This reminds us of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter six. God reminds us, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. Well, now is the right time to listen the day to be helped. Don't put it off. Don't frustrate God's work by showing up late, throwing a question mark over everything we're doing. Did you catch that? What does unbelief want to do? Well, I don't know. Well, what about this? What about that? Listen, and there's a place for honest questions, but some of your questions are too continual to be honest. You keep plowing the same ground. You've heard the answer. You just didn't like it. And unbelief is governing you, not faith. And he's saying, don't frustrate God's work by throwing a question mark over everything we're doing. Listen, can I just say this? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now's the time to listen. Now is the time to give your heart to Jesus. Now is the time to rededicate your life to him and experience his presence. Because delay dulls the voice of the Spirit. Until finally, your hardness of heart makes it difficult to even hear the voice of God. Hebrews 3 and verse 17, it says this. We're going to move on to verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief unbelief can keep you from knowing the goodness of god in ways you can't begin to imagine if you haven't been born again listen you need to be saved and the only thing that will keep you from that is unbelief straight up and you ought to by now be scared to death of unbelief i'd be more afraid of unbelief than i would be what other people thought if i raised my hand and came forward to receive christ by a million miles i'd be more afraid of unbelief if you need to rededicate your life today, do it. The only thing that will stop you is unbelief. If you stop believing him to do the impossible, believe him today and don't stop, and you'll see the impossible happen.